0: He knew that these were a people who would seek to utterly destroy the people of Israel. And so it's the love of God for people that wants to protect the Jewish people. You see, the destruction of the Jewish people would mean an end to the Messianic line and it's through the Hebrew people that God promises to bring the Savior of the world.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures. The Bible Teaching Ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are presenting a number of special messages over the next few weeks, and today Dr. Brogy begins a three-day look at the Book of Esther. This is a beloved account of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, and although the name of God is not specifically mentioned in this book, His handprints are all over the storyline take
0: your bibles this morning would you and turn to the book of esther if you're not familiar with this neglected book you can find the psalms it's about dead center in your bible and then scan two books to the left right before the psalms you'll find the book of job and right before job you will come to the book of esther ladies and gentlemen we are living in a generation that is witnessing a moral slide and more so in the last 20 years and in all of american history America is not just simply rotting from within. The world is. Wherever you go, there's more and more decadence. We are living in a day of declining spirituality and a day of decaying morality. The American Conservative, it's a print magazine and daily site for political analysis based in Washington, D.C. I like it because they don't exaggerate. They're careful, they're accurate. More than any other organization I found two weeks ago they said this three out of 10 women under the age of 25 consider themselves to be gay or transgender. We now have 30% of Generation Z who are claiming to be sexually uninterested in men, another sign of a deeply decadent society, according to Romans chapter 1. The most important thing a generation can do is reproduce the next generation. No families means no children and no future. Just in June, the state of Massachusetts, the officials there declared that churches are subject to the public accommodation laws. This means that if churches host public activities, something like a spaghetti dinner or a fall festival or a vacation Bible school, Women's private changing areas and restrooms must be available to men who identify as women or you will face crippling fines or even jail time. This forced Pastor Carrasco there in Massachusetts to shut down his church's women's shelter because they would be forced to allow men who identify as female to use the same restrooms and living facilities as these vulnerable women a major plank in the democratic platform. Most so-called evangelicals for Biden never obviously read it, or if they did, they're grossly ignorant of Scripture or maybe even unconverted. A major plank is the Equality Act. And if passed, it would make these kinds of regulations standard in America. And our new president elects, if he is indeed says that he will make this his business by presidential decree in the first hundred days. If we lose the Senate, it will become law, or it will be done initially by executive order. And if the Equality Act is passed... And by the way, it was voted on on May the 17th, 2019, the vote, and the House was 236 to 173. 100% of all the Democratic people voted in favor of it, and nine Republicans. But they did not have the support of the Senate. But if passed, it will remove the tax-exempt status of Christian schools, Christian colleges, Christian universities, seminaries, adoption agencies, food pantries, Christian radio stations, if they fail to fall in line with the LGBTQIA and abortion agenda. Any church or private school, for that matter, if they hire a person who says that they engage in sodomy and in same-sex behavior, and they refuse to hire them on that basis, or more likely, if they hire such an individual, only to find out later that this is their position, and they fire them, be it a church or, for that matter, a Christian business, they will be in violation of this act. I believe we are living in the latter times. The Scripture tells us that in the latter times... God would gather the children of Israel from the four corners of the world, and he would bring them back into the land of Israel. People occasionally say to me, I wish I could have lived in biblical times. I wish I could have seen biblical history unfold. You are seeing biblical history unfold. You are living in the very times the scripture wrote about. And so, God said, Jesus affirmed it, that he would gather the Jewish people from across the planet. There's only 12.5 million Jews on the earth, 8 million of them, nearly 8 million now are living in the land of Israel, and the scripture's clear, 100% will not come. But listen, whether Jesus comes next week or 50 years from now, it does not change one bit our responsibility to be salt and light to a decadent society. And so the moral decline in the day in which we live forces us to ask some very, very important and penetrating questions. What kind of a man, what kind of a woman, what kind of a church, what kind of a teenager does it take to make an impact on this kind of a generation? How do you impact a moral decadent and morally corrupt society? Well, the answer is found here in the book of Esther. And I want us to learn today that the strength to stand firm, the ability to make an impact, to have moral courage in the midst of a culture that opposes you comes from spiritual commitment. And we see that in the lives of Mordecai and in the life of Esther. Let me just say it again. Moral courage is always the product of spiritual commitment of your obedience to do what is right. And if your moral courage is strong, no one and nothing will be able to stop you. And I want to prove that this morning because Queen Esther lived in a day of rank paganism. Now, as you're finding that book in the Old Testament, let me just remind you, there are only two books in all of the Bible that are named after a woman. The book of Ruth and the book of Esther. And in many ways, they're a study in contrast. The book of Ruth tells us the record of a Gentile woman who married a Hebrew man, and God used her to perpetuate the line of the Messiah from which the Lord Jesus came. The book of Esther is the story of a Hebrew woman who married a Gentile man, and God used her to preserve the nation of Israel so that the Messiah could be born. The record of Ruth, as you read it, it begins with a famine, and it ends with a birth. When you read the book of Esther, it begins specifically with a great feast, but it ends with the death of some 75,000 people. God is mentioned 25 times in the book of Ruth. His name never appears once in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are everywhere. Ruth is a book of faith working through love. Esther is a book of faith working through courage. So being able to stand strong is what we desperately need in this day. And Esther was a person of moral courage. She had the moral courage of her convictions to stand up for what she knew to be true. And let me say, there are a few individuals who will galvanize and encourage you more. Remember, the Old Testament is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. The Old Testament, we're told, was written for those of us who would live upon whom the ends of the ages would come. And God knew that there would be a people living at the end of time who would desperately need the courage and the, and, and the example that, again, will galvanize you in a way that few other people can do. Now, if you read the book of Esther several times over, you will discover it divides into three major portions. In chapters 1 and 2, we find the selection of Esther. After a long and arduous process to select a new queen out of one of 127 provinces, Esther is selected. Then when you come to chapters 3 through 7, the theme is the detection of Haman. He is the villain of the story. It's a true story. He cooks up a plan, of course, to exterminate the Jewish people. And then, as I've written here on my outline, chapters 8 through 10 deals with the protection of Israel. God is going to preserve this nation. Why? Because all of biblical history flows through Israel. God brought the Messiah the first time through the Jewish people, and he is going to bring the Messiah back through the Jewish people. Now, I'm going to cover the highlights of the book of Esther this morning. I want to encourage you to go home and fill in the details. I listened to it last night when I went to bed and I fell asleep, I think somewhere in chapter 7, but it will only take you about 30 minutes or so to get your way through it. Now, the book opens with a royal banquet, and it's quite a party. Follow along with me. I hope you brought a Bible. You need to bring a Bible to church with you. That's what I told the last service. I saw several people out there without a Bible, looking at their neighbor's Bible. Look, you don't eat off of your neighbor's plate. Neither do you need to look off of your neighbor's Bible. You need to have your own copy. And I promise you'll get more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God in your lap. And if you don't have one, come to meet the pastor and you will receive one. All right, notice how the book opens. Now, it took place in the days of Harasseros. Now, some of your Bibles say in the day of Xerxes because they are following the septuagint the greek translation and that was his more popular name but the hebrew bible says the days of Haraserus now it took place in the days of Haraserus the Haraserus who reigned from india to ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days his king of harasserous sat on his royal throne which was in the citadel of Sus- in susa in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media and the nobles and the princes of his province provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, one hundred and eighty days. And after this great party for all of the leadership in all the provinces, we learn in verse 5, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now notice verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kind, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. Drop down to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he was loaded, brogi paraphrase, having become drunk, we are told, he commanded Mahoman, Bithsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zathar, and Karkis. Those are some names you might name your kids after. Huh? <laughs> the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Harassarus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes. For she was beautiful, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And the king became very angry as wrath burned within him. What a revolting development for this king. Of course, his his only concern is what will happen What will happen if word gets out among his empire that his own queen would not come at his edict? So he gathers some of his advisors together, and we read of their counsel here in verse 17. Notice. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Harassurus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So he's warned by his leaders that if this goes unchecked, he'll have a revolt on his hands, that the other ladies in the kingdom might follow her example. Of course, these same men have very little concern for the way that this king, by brutal example, by gross mistreatment of vastity, they don't care about that. They're only concerned about themselves. So three years go by, and King Harasuerus gets lonely. Now, secular history records for us that he's actually been away for three years. He's fighting the Greeks, and it's a humiliating defeat. History records he took a million men with him, and he came back with 5,000. And so he sought solace, as many do, in his sin. So he decides to satisfy his central appetites by searching for a new queen and filling up his harem with new women. And so the king has a beauty contest to pick a new queen. And so look now, if you will, at chapter 2 and verse 3. "'Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom,' that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. The matter pleased the king And he did accordingly. And so in the process of gathering all these women under the king's edict, Esther is selected by the king's attendants as a consideration. And so now we're introduced to both Mordecai and Esther here in verse 5. Notice, if you will. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with jeconiah king of judah whom nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon had exiled remember the kingdom was once united at one point god sent prophets to preach to the northern kingdom he sent prophets to preach to the southern kingdom if you don't repent and obey i'm going to discipline discipline you the northern kingdom was carried off And then some years later, the southern kingdom by King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC were carried off as well. And so Mordecai's great-grandfather was one of the Jews who was carried off in that deportation. When the 70-year captivity was over, for whatever reason, his father did not go back. And Mordecai ends up living in Persia because in the providence of God, God is going to use him to preserve the Jewish people. And that will become clear. Uh, Notice, if you will, verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, their first cousins. For she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now that tells me that Esther, her parents, died young. We don't know for what reason but his first cousin, Mordecai, ends up, the text says, raising her as her own daughter. And chronology-wise, that would be more common in biblical times than in our times, because people, one, tended to see children as a blessing and they had more children than the average evangelical in people do today. I was kind of blown away when I was introduced to my wife's family, only to discover that her grandmother was pregnant with her seventh child at the same time when her, Audrey's mother was pregnant with her first. And so here's Mordecai. He's Esther's first cousin, but he's old enough to be her daddy. And he raises her as such. And if you're familiar with the book of Esther, you know that Esther, of course, won the beauty contest. Look at verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So now the plot thickens. We're introduced to the sinister minister by the name of Haman, who hatches the plot to exterminate the Jews. And today, whenever Haman's name is read at the Feast of Purim, the Jewish people across the world will read the book of Esther. And when his name is read, they stomp like this, as an expression of their disdain because God said in Exodus 17 and in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25 that the Jewish people were to blot out the memory of Amalek from whom Haman of course descends. Now look if you will at chapter 3 in verse 1. After these events King Harassurus promoted Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Mordecai refuses to bow down and to show him respect. Now, please understand, for a Hebrew person to bow down to an official was not a violation of the second commandment any more than it is for a Christian today to show respect for someone who is in office. Abraham bowed down to the sons of Heth. In negotiating Sarah's grave, and he was certainly not an idolater. Joseph's brothers bowed down to him, not knowing who he was, but as an Egyptian official. David bowed down to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and Jacob and his family bowed down before Esau. But Mordecai refuses to bow down before Haman. Was it because He was filled with pride. Is that what kept him from bowing down and showing him respect? I mean, if Mordecai could not respect the man, could he not at least respect the office? I think the answer is found in the fact that Haman is an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were the bitter enemies of the Jews. Haman had descended from King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And if you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, God said that Saul was to destroy all of the Amalekites. God had waited for some 400 years. That's why they were in bondage for 400 years. God was giving the people living in the land of Israel 400 years to repent. But they had become such a vile, wicked, evil people, killing and frying on the fire, even their own babies, God in his providence, knowing the generational unbelief of the Amalekites, said that they were to be destroyed. And so in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 16, God declared war on them. Listen to these words. The Lord has sworn. The Lord will will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. God in his omniscience was able to see the generational unbelief. And so he knew that these were a people who would seek to utterly destroy the people of Israel. And so it's the love of God for people that wants to protect the Jewish people. You see, the destruction of the Jewish people would mean an end to the Messianic line, and it's through the Hebrew people that God promises to bring the Savior of the world. And so here's Mordecai, and he's thinking, how can I do homage to an enemy of the Lord. And so here's Mordecai, and he is on the Lord's side. He doesn't really care what people think. He is concerned with what God thinks. Now, old Haman, he's ticked off. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Harassurus. So Haman, he devises a plan, and he takes the plan to the king. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to king Harasserus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay out of his own pocket 10,000 talents of silver, that's a huge sum of money, into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Haman has a hatred like the devil does for the Jewish people. He knew how to push the king's buttons, he knew how to appeal to the conceit of this king, not to mention his greed. And notice the king's response. It's found in verses 10 through 12. And the king, in essence, says, Keep your money, but carry out your plan. Look now at verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Now, remember, this is throughout the whole empire. Verse 14 informs us. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. Now, Satan has made many attempts throughout human history to destroy the Jewish people. There's no other people in the history of humanity who have been opposed and hated like the Jewish people, no people. Why? Because behind their hatred is an inspired demonic uh, force that is at work. And so God preserves these people year after year after year, and God continues. Decades, century after century, millennia after millennia, to preserve the nation of Israel. And the Bible reveals there's coming a day in the future, according to the book of Romans and the book of Revelation, according to Jeremiah 31, according to Ezekiel 36, where the nation as a whole will become recipients of the new covenant. You and I, who are born again, are recipients today. But there's coming a time when in whole the Jewish people will repent. And whether it's a Pharaoh, whether it's a Haman, whether it's a Herod or a Hitler, the Jewish people cannot and never will be annihilated. Listen to the promise that God made right after he gave the promise of a new covenant. He says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I wish John Calvin had listened to This verse. I wish every replacement theologian of our day had heard the next verse. If this fixed order of the sun, the moon, and the stars departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. So Mordecai, who's kind of an unofficial White House correspondent, hears of Haman's wicked plot. And we learn here now in chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned, All that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He's going to God for help. After all, he is, after he has done all this, Esther, of course, gets wind, and he wants her to understand what her role is going to be in God's plan. She hears of Mordecai putting on sackcloth and ash and mourning there and wailing there in the city. She wants to know what's going on through her uncle. And so as you read the text in verse 5, she summons Hatak, one of the king's unit, go to Mordecai, find out what's wrong. Now, I doubt for a moment that Hatak understood the incredible role that he was going to play in the preservation of the Jews. And that's often the way it is the work of god for the most part are done through obscure people he says not many wise not many noble not many rich he doesn't say not any wise not any noble not any rich but most of god's work in this world is done through simple ordinary people wherever you go in the world and you see that pattern all the way through scripture obscure people
1: god oftentimes uses the lowly to accomplish great things And so it was with Hattach, the court eunuch who was an ordinary, everyday person, just like us. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at the story of Esther as we continue this three-day message entitled, Standing Firm in Difficult Days. And we are indeed in difficult days, so it is our hope that you'll benefit from this look at the faithfulness of people like Esther and Mordecai as we may sooner or later face decisions that will test our faith. To listen to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Today's message is number STF20. Don't forget, by God's grace, we are hoping to host two trips to Israel in late September and early October of 2021. Check out all the details at stsisraeltour.com. And join us again tomorrow for part two of Standing Firm in Difficult Days when again we search the scriptures.